Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Julia LaRoche Show. I am beyond excited to bring to you this two-hour conversation with Hugh Hendry, who is a well-known contrarian thinker, a former global macro hedge fund manager. And this was such an awesome, unfiltered conversation. He said things that I've never heard him say before. We literally talked about everything, including some of his thought-provoking views on the economy and how he thinks about the world. I can't wait for you to listen and hear what you think. Enjoy. I'm pleased to bring in Hugh Hendry, former global macro hedge fund manager, founder of Eclectica Asset Management, a global macro hedge fund that was pretty much uncorrelated to everything in the financial universe. Uh, Hugh started Eclectica in 2002 and ran it for 15 years before closing in 2017. Hugh, it's great to have you on the show. Oh, heavens. As, As I keep saying, joy, joy is our energy. And I think... At the end, with your joyful presence, we'll have created even more energy. So I'm very, very stoked and very happy to do this. There you go. I'm here for it. And um, you are on St. Bart's now. I know that's where you've been living lately. You've been uh, a luxury hotelier. Um, Tell me about the last five years. Like, what have you been up to, Hugh? That is a, you know, that we we could go so many directions with that. Um, um, I remember going on Bloomberg the day of kind of announcing the, the closure of the fund. And, and what a time that was back in, in October 2017, because I just opened this beautiful house, uh, Maison Blanc Bleu, um, about two years prior to that. And, you know, we really, we got smacked head on with Hurricane Irma. Um, it, the eye of the storm actually passed over the island. And, I've never seen anything like it. And, and the house was actually closed for, for nine months. Um, just not a huge need for repairs, but just the, the logistics of getting fit and getting so much on, onto this tiny island. Um, and, and in the same week as that darn storm um, in London, in my office, we, we lost the last remaining big client. And so, you know, the hedge fund had become untenable. Um, and so that was closure. And so I was on Bloomberg and I was saying, I think I died. I died in active financial combat, um, which of course is nonsense. But you know, the brain is in this dark cavity in the head. You know, there's no light, and it it has to trust on our you know, on the crazy monkey chatter that, that, that occupies all of our time and attention. And I swear, um, periodically, there were times because you, 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 you reflect kindly on the fact that uh, my fund, you know, it, it made money, it didn't make money, it made a lot of money, never lost a lot of money, returns, you know, whatever, but it wasn't correlated. Um, and in being that kind of different kind of thing and being that cult, um, there were moments where you thought, oh, my God, I'm so messed up. I'm dead. They're going to kill me. And your brain's like, oh, what? Well, they're going to kill us. And we, you get flooded with all those terrible uh, chemicals because uh, the brain doesn't know. So to answer your question, the last five years in St. Bart's have been uh, healing the soft focus of being in one of the most beautiful locations in the world. Um getting younger, if you will, getting even more irreverent, if you will. Um, there's, a, 
there's surfing here, and then there's there's this je ne sais je ne sais quoi. Um, I mean, this is a French island, and again, another great healing thing is learning a language, like lighting up neural pathways. You know, learning French, learning to play the bass guitar. You know, and just kind of unwinding the mind. But here, there's so, there's something in the in Saint Bart's. We like to say there's a well to borrow from who was it? Bob Marley. There's a what did he say? There's a natural mystic flowing through the air, and I don't know why, but somehow. The darn rhythms of markets and currencies and treasuries in the Fed somehow it gets into this head. So that's I hope I haven't taken too much um, time in answering your first question. Not at all. It's actually it's interesting, and I like Hugh that you called it healing. Um, and I'm looking at you now, and you seem very relaxed. You have this beautiful. Uh, I could see the reflection and the windows behind you of just the beautiful views that you have, and. Um, you're obviously not in your suit and tie anymore, um, n- not as buttoned up as you used to be, but how do you kind of juxtapose your life now versus um, when you were running a hedge fund? Um, and like, what kind of lessons do you look back and can pick out from your hedge fund career and um, things that maybe uh, you would even change? Yeah, again, super question. So, <laughs> you know, if God forbid you were to do a Google search and, and bring up photographs of, of me, I, I don't look the same the same person. I've got this short hair and the tie and the, you know the the suit. And um, back then, um, you got to sell like finance is one of these things. It's a product that you got to sell it, um, and people have an expectation, preposterously silly expectations of of how you're meant to look. And I had. You know, my my first year, we we'd actually made a big chunk of money. We made fifty percent for the first calendar year because we had captured the initial upward thrust in gold in the gold price. And then, what about five years later, in the toughest, most dramatic, most alarming month in a hundred years of equity markets, uh, October two thousand and eight, um, we recorded a gain of fifty percent. Um, and 30 odd percent for the calendar year. Um, but six months further forward, there was almost no money left in the fund. And it was kind of like, and, and I didn't wear a suit back then. I wore t-shirts and camouflage trousers. My office was in, you know, was not in uh, Mayfair. Um, I, you couldn't contact me by tell. I didn't have a tell. I didn't have a, you know, an office space telephone. You know, the, the typical banking hedge fund relationship model is some, some guy or girl calls you with what they call the edge. You know, let me give you our flow. Let me, let, let, you're the first person I'm going to tell this to. So jump in, buy or sell before everyone else. And the only edge that I think I was looking for was the guitarist from you too. <laughs> I certainly wasn't looking for, you know, this peep list of kind of other people's narratives, you know? So my, if there were distinctions, I was very much the architect of the very few <laughs> achievements. And, and, and obviously I was the author of the, the lots and lots of mistakes, but I was good at handling mistakes. So 
Um, but owing to that, so there I was, and I thought I'd really, I had performed, but because I didn't look the part, clients kind of weren't interested. And so I was persuaded to, to suit up and talk the talk. And I was promised that if I did that, I would soon be managing billions of dollars. And I'm dismayed to tell you it was true. And what did I learn? I learned that it was the best of times financially and creatively and for my, my very, very sensitive soul, it was the worst of times. So that's what I learned. What do you mean by that when you say the worst of times? I, w- I wasn't happy. I'd lost myself. You know, you know these kind of three musketeer, <laughs> let's keep with the, the French theme, these three musketeer movies. And I think in one of the, these wonderful uh, novels, um, I think there's been a, a, the real king of France has been born out of wedlock. You know, I think there has been something naughty having passed between, you know, the chambermaid and, and then the father, I don't want to go there, but this poor kid, you know, the man in the iron face is, uh, is kept in the dungeons below and no one, no one talks about him. And of course the, uh, the more appropriate son is, um, is, is crowned. And I felt like that. I, I felt that the real me, uh, the creative me um, had been very much hidden, if you will, out of sight because that person was, and yet that was the person that every now and again, because that person was like no other in this business, that person sometimes got glimpses of what could come to pass. You know, that person was someone that could conceive of contentious posturing of a narrative that today people would say, get out of here, you're crazy. But actually, in the fullness of time, and time I would measure with regard to two years, within two years, it could become an accepted belief system. That's what I was good at. But that person was kind of muzzled and, and kept out of view. And, um, you know, I, I, I counted the money for a while. I popped the champagne corks and same part. I don't like champagne, but you know, I popped it anyway. Everyone around me was happy. And then one day I went <laughs> and I threw off the damn mask. And um, I wrote a letter to the clients. And I think it was the end of 2013. And I said, hey, listen, what if I was parodying a character from Entourage, that wonderful, I think, HBO series, which was kind of roughly based on Mark, Mark, uh, whatever he's called, um, the actor, um, and his exploits um, as he was starting off in Hollywood. And there was a, um, a, a director who was always making these fantastic claims. And apparently a long time ago, he'd been a big deal. And he, and he was saying, what if I could tell you this movie is going to cost you $40 million to make, is going to gross you $400 million, you're going to win three Oscars. Is that something you would be interested in? And I and I parodied that to say, what if I tell you, I think this damn mark is going to go higher and higher and higher and you don't need me. And all around me, the team were harsh. They said, if you send that, 
business is over. And and I, and I I looked at them all in the eye and I went, boom. We hit done. thin. Yeah. Um, I, there are a couple of things in there that I want to um, explore with you because um, I think this was one of the things that always made me interested in, in covering you is you were different. You were contrarian and um, just kind of the way you think about things is it's different. And it's and I mean that in a, in a really good way. You said um, thank you. Something about being able to conceive of contentious posturing of a narrative. I've heard you say this many times over the years. Can you explain um, what you mean by that? I could try. I can certainly try. So, um, so there's a there's, there's a strange thing. Um, I've been labeled as contrarian, um, and. I always pause on that contrarian, but I pause because um, trends, being cognizant of trends, um, being consistent with trends has always been um, a fantastically important part of the exercise for me. Um, For the first eight years, it wasn't. For the first eight years, I was immersed in a a long-only pension fund business where the, the, the micro data and the analysis was incredibly thorough and good. And they sought to control risk through the investment in superior companies with the realistic expectation that uh, superior companies are, are less risky, less subject to like dropping the ball. But God forbid if they do, because the implications are... <laughs> so um, a trend following contrarian you know, if you if you master in language, you, you might you might pull down oxymoron, and some people might just drop the oxy and just say more. It felt like in two thousand and nine, people were just saying he's a moron, you know. Um, but you know, oxymoron is these two two consistent inconsistent terms clashing and being joined together. So, forming a contentious narrative that could go on to become the accepted belief system, I pursued that. I want to say calendar year 2006. I'm very proud of what I was saying. I was saying, um, if you believe the future is one of inflation, you have to buy duration. You've got to be out there buying the long US Treasury bond today. And I was saying that as someone um, that came from having made a lot of money in gold. And I was saying, if you think gold's going to be 3,000 bucks, you know, today it's, I don't know, like, between $1,800 and $1,900. Uh, but back then, it would have been about you know, four, $500. And we were beginning to see Wall Street banks. I remember Citigroup coming out and saying, who's going to go to 3000 bucks? Maybe. Uh, not this year, i.e. 2006. And that's what I was saying. I was like, hey, listen, for that, to, for, that for their narrative to be fulfilled, What's got to happen is the Fed's got to, the Fed was at 5.25 overnight interest rates. And I was saying, I can see a storm. I mean, I can see a hell of a storm, an economic storm. And when this storm comes to pass, interest rates will be zero. And the central bank will be so pumped up because it will feel like the end of the world that they will be taking so many risks with their reputation and they will be experimenting with money that that's the environment that might 
in, that, that might propel gold and other inflation-linked securities higher. But first, you need this deflationary crisis. And so that, if you will, that came to pass, but that blew a lot of fuses in the, in the minds of intelligent people. If you think the future is inflationary, buy, buy now the asset class, which is the most exposed to inflation, like, you know, they, they would be damaged by inflation, which is 30-year bonds, where you have, you, it's just a nominal security. But that nominality, if you will, is perfect when the deflationary storm comes to pass. So that's an example that came to pass. I like that example. Um, and it's just so interesting getting a glimpse into like how things kind of work for you. And um, I mean, it's interesting because I imagine in the hedge fund world, you know, it's like the idea dinners, the conferences, um, I don't know, whatever you hear on financial media. To me, what's so fascinating is just kind of this ability for you to kind of put together your thesis um, without all of that outside noise. Like, how do you do that? How do you kind of separate? What is kind of your process for kind of gathering the data or information to put together um, an argument or a thesis? Yeah. So... There, there was a process, I, I promise you. Um, and, and the process began with surrounding myself with an intelligence crew, you know, really good CIA-like agents that could, that had the, the nerve and the audacity and the willingness to take me on. That's very important, you know. Great military leaders from history, when you read these books, um, their downfall is that with all of the acclaim, they find themselves surrounded by sycophants that don't contest, but simply amplify the, the reasoning of, of the, the person at the center. And that's, you're always one step away from, from, from great, um, great mistakes when that's happening. And secondly, my intelligence team um, were distinct from me. You know, they were... Um, um, you know, never be a dick for a tick kind of thing. Like in, surround yourself with people with profoundly greater talents than you in different silos, if you will, and, and pay them as much as possible. And, and, and just, again, be a, create joy with that working environment. With regard to me, my thing was, my thing was unique. So, um, I'm going up two and 20. And if we go back, you know, if we go back 25 years ago, before the Zuckerbergs and before the technology platforms where winner takes everything, you know, where you become worth $200 billion. Before that, the highest return on intellectual capital, it seemed, was managing a hedge fund. Still is. I mean, if you look at the preposterous, uh, returns created from the huge bounce out of markets from the, the COVID lows of March 2020. And you and you see the Chase Coleman's and, and, and the like, and their $6 billion pay packets. Yeah. Uh, my point was, it makes no sense for me to try and outsmart the most logically intelligent people on the planet. And instead, I, I said about solving the equation. Why is it that even if you're super smart, 
you're not guaranteed to make money in the absurdity, in the theater, which is speculation. Um, and so I, my information sources were different. I, again, I said to you, you know, I'm in St. Bart's and I still have this kind of mystic sense of information reaching me. It, it, if you're a curious soul, if you've got a, an intelligent mind, um, it's coming at you everywhere. The challenge is to, is to unlock the, the conscious or the unconscious REM. And so for me, reading, um, you, people say I'm creative, right? Okay, well done, but you have to work at being creative. And reading is, is like this mental gym. And reading everything, going tangential, like do not read economic reports. God forbid, please do not. Uh, read fun things, you know, read literature and the mind plays and expands and the mind takes the decisions of the characters from the tales before they do. And then you judge what they're doing. You're harnessing the power of the mind. Um, so that's what I would, I would, I played a lot of music. Um, I was either in my, my locked office with the lights off playing music loudly. I was at home doing the same. And I looked at, um, I, I I'm not into today. I'm, I, I believe there's a conceit associated with modernity, with somehow that we are smarter than all of the generations that came before us. And I reject that. So I deployed uh, a charting sensibility created, I like to think created by samurai waving, but certainly rice trading Japanese traders from the 17th century. Um, and that and the technology to, to, to go through a lot of charts which were prescribed on terms, they became like sheet music. Um, and to listen to music and to read, from that I got, I could conceive of things. And then I was very willing to, to invest in anything like a centipede. I had a hundred legs. I, I always believed in being... Uh, dividing things into lots and lots and lots of things. And if it didn't work, I'd take it off, you know. Um, and then having that intelligence team, you know, coming out of that room and saying, this is what I think. And my team would then go around banks and experts and would be very conventional and very thorough in their analysis. And then we'd have the synthesis where we might agree, we might not agree. And, and, and that would shape and form the portfolio. There are so many gems in that answer that I could um, tease out further. Um, you know, just like when you say like looking at charts is like sheet music. Um, that just is so visual to me or, you know, the centipede with a bunch of different things and the ability to like, you know, dividing things up or, you know, if something's not working. How important is it like the ability to change your mind? Um, I, I don't know. I've been covering I've been covering hedge funds for a decade. Um, I would not say I'm not a hedge fund expert by any means, but sometimes it just kind of appears like maybe folks get in trouble when they can't change their mind. They can't be, you know, flexible. Talk to me about, you know, some of the things that like really work. Um, is it the ability to change your mind, not be married to a position? Uh, what do you think? Yeah. So I, I can recall, um, you know, I had eight years of my career learning rudimentary and, and thorough technique in terms of trying to understand companies. I always liken it to, to reading the scriptures of the Taliban. You know, you were being kind of uh, immersed in an ideology. And 
it, it couldn't harness the, the kind of unique skill set that I have. Um, and, and then I met an extraordinary character, a pioneer in the hedge fund world it, it, out of London. And he taught me these, if in, if in Edinburgh, you know, Edinburgh was gray and cold. And I know you might think of London as being gray and cold, but if you come from Scotland, London feels like Ibiza initially. <laughs> um, and, and he taught me to take on board softer, uh, playful, playfulness, curiosity and playfulness. Uh, to be, if you will, to be naughty, like not to be constrained, touch things, oh, ouch, learn, you know. And and I think the superpower that, that we had was the ability to have investiture in today, to, to truly believe that you had it right, and yet to turn 180 degrees the next day and say, kick it out, kick it out. It's so hard, you know, some of the greats, um, Michael Steinhardt, um, as an example, but you know the man. Um, Stan Druckenmiller is is legendary at this. Um, he'll reach a point where he's in a funk, and he doesn't get it, and picks up the phone and to the trading desk and he says, "Sell it all." It's so hard. Like the investiture that people have is so hard to do that because every day you you feel like the clock's running. You know, the meter's running. Um, and the great legends of the of, of the space, um, their superpowers close it all down because I, I don't get the market just now. So why should I be invested? Um, so that's certainly, um, I would encourage and I wish we could see more of that. You, you see this year, there's been a horrible slide in investment performance. You know, some of these, uh, notable, very well-paid managers have ended up losing, you know, 50, 60% in the, in the first six months of the year. And that's, that could have been overcome earlier just by saying, you know, I don't, like you, what is the Fed doing? Do we have inflation? They, they want to raise interest rates. Did we read too much into COVID? You know, like Netflix seemed to give the wrong signal. You know, the, uh, what is it called? The, a Peloton certainly gave the wrong signal. The home delivery companies gave the wrong signal. Like whatever was happening in 2020, 2021 was not going to happen as a perpetuity. And so valuations came unstuck. So like sitting on the bench for a while actually um, is, is a, is a skill set that, that can preserve money. I like that a lot. Um, I also liked um, in your answer in the prior question, when you're talking about, kind of being a bit more of like a curious soul, um, which I, I think you certainly are just based on what I've seen over the years. And I kind of want to see if we could go back to maybe some of your earlier years. Um, you mentioned Scotland. You grew up in Glasgow. Is that correct? Um, I'd just love to hear about, yeah. you know, what it was like growing up and how maybe your curiosity was kind of um, fostered over the years. What were you like as a young man? Well, you know, <laughs> John Lennon's got a great song called Working Class Hero. Um, but I think it's just a great song and it's not something that I really try and kind of um, proclaim, if you will. You know, my father was a truck driver. Um, I'm, I'm very aware of the grayness of that life. Um, but I'm also very, I'm also very clear that it, it gets very close to 
uh, the therapy that I'm undertaking just now, because, you know, we are all defined. We all have a, a perception of reality by the, the things that, I mean, you're right to go looking there because that's, that's the, the launch pad that, that creates the personality of the adult many, many years later. Um, and all I can say is for reasons that I don't fully understand, I had to grow up very, very quickly. Um, like I had a lot of responsibility from the age of like 10 or so. And owing to that, I didn't really have a functioning childhood. My childhood was, was great. My childhood was, if you, I want to say it was sacrificed owing to a, a deep and unexplainable desire to get out of Dodge, if you will. And, and, and I had an enlightenment that education would take me there. Um, and it's funny how we, we package these memories. Um, I, you know, it was only, I, I want to say, I mean, you're just getting way too personal, but I think only like three or four years ago, I kind of suddenly kind of thought, hey, I, maybe I'm kind of intelligent. I, I, for the, all my life, I was in denial of all of these things. It's just this kind of, this fury, this, this, I don't know, this kind of, um, perhaps the anger of having missed a childhood. And so very much, so what you see now is um, the Benjamin Button. And, and you know, one of the reasons when I got here to this beautiful place with a, you know, um, with all the things, you know, the, the hiking, the swimming, you know, I was in the swimming in the, the ocean this morning. Um, the child within me said, okay, we, we're not going anywhere now. We're staying here. And we're going to be childlike, you know, and I do lots of kind of silly, goofy things like a child would. So I'm kind of, if you will, spending my life in reverse. Um, I like that. And I also like um, how open you're, you are, you've been and, and, that, and open your being about this as well. Um, because I just think more people need to hear, um, you know, this from folks, especially someone who's been in this industry um, for, you know, more, I guess more than 15 years. Um, what was it that made you want to go into markets? Like, how did, how did that kind of, we mentioned, you mentioned earlier, it was like, you know, the best return on your like intellectual capital at the time um, when you were getting into it. But what was it about markets that kind of drew you into that business? Mm. Well, I, I was not some 10 year old entrepreneur, you know, well, when I was um, regaling you with the notion of growing up too rapidly, you know, I think it was like organizing you know, my, uh, my parents um, my, and my life if, if it was defined somewhat by um, the political economic revolution of Reagan and Thatcher especially Thatcher, you know, she introduced um, the, the, the ability to, for, for ordinary folk to buy public housing stock. You know, we, we were uh, renting um, an apartment and then a home from the local, the local government. And then Thatcher came around and said, I want you to buy it. I think if you, if you own it, then there'll be a greater sense of community and you'll take care of things. And it's something I kind of, um, I applaud and support, but what it meant was that, um, and you know, here we are 50 years later, so this was 1980, 
Is that 50 years? Sorry. I'm 40, is it almost? Honest, less than, gosh, it's... 40, 43 years, 42 years. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. 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 I'm, just, I'm just adding decades onto my, onto my age. Um, but it, you know, 40 odd years ago, uh, there were some folk who just never conceived that they would have a mortgage. Get out of here. And, and I kind of um, sent my parents into like hyperdrive of being anxious. And it meant that my mother got a job and it meant that my father um, took on these long distance gigs. And I knew that's all the, the, the kind of psychosis in, inside my head. So like when I was saying I was growing up, I was like, you know, making beds, peeling potatoes and silly stuff like that. I was, I was not on golf courses trying to like fish out golf balls and then selling them back to the customers. I was not, I didn't have a paper round and then I was investing it, you know, in privatization issues coming out of the Thatcher government. None of that. Um, my thing is more like when people describe you and artists describe hearing Bowie for the first time, hearing the, hearing the doors, you know, coming out of the radio, you know, uh, driving on the freeway and life suddenly changed. And, and for me, that moment was I took on a subject. Um, <laughs> it certainly doesn't sound like the doors of, or David Bowie, but I was studying market-based accounting research. Oh, la vache. And we had a, a precursor of Bloomberg terminals. We had data stream this old kind of box with a kind of green screen. And we were testing accountancy hypothesis, you know, a change of accountant, accountancy policy, one where it doesn't change the underlying cash flow of the business and therefore it's just noise. And one where actually it does have implications for cash flow and therefore valuation. And would the market be able to determine the difference? And so I was there with this screen, I'd set it all up, you know, to, under instruction. And and you're literally waiting for the tempest. It was so dramatic. You would, it, you know, it's like being being a free diver, being at the bottom of the ocean and almost giving away your lung capacity to regain the surface with the expectation that a mermaid might reach out in the gloom and, and offer you another world. This is, this is, this, this is, this is my romanticism, forgive me. And that was my hook. I thought, wow, I like this. And then I discovered that there was, um, so that was in Glasgow and 50 miles away, Edinburgh was really quite a prominent uh, financial center. And serendipity lent a hand. And, and with the passion that I've always had, I found myself, you know, nine months later, um, embarking on, you know, this fascinating journey. I'd never heard of hedge funds. Uh, and again, it was just a further ridiculous terms of fate that led me uh, to have a lunch with the chap who'd been either the first, second or third person in Europe to launch a, macro, to, to launch a hedge fund under the auspices of, of George Soros. Um, so some people say life's just meant to be um, I don't know. I get confused by it. Um, and that was the the gentleman that you mentioned earlier. That was the man who kind of helped you kind of have more fun, explore your curiosity when it came to investing. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, so th that's Chris Benodi. Oh, of course. And, yes. Yeah. A larger than life. 
And and we worked together from uh, March 1999 to March 2002, 2002, is that right? No, 2005, longer than 2005, yeah. And, and yeah, I mean, I... I I, I, I cherish the memories of, of the man and, and 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 that you know when he when he was thinking about hiring me you know there's a process of due diligence which I call being nosy <laughs> <laughs> and you know, he would call uh, call around and, and the message was to- toxic <laughs> you know kids a troublemaker <laughs> but Chris Crispin understood that military thing and, and he needed troublemakers that would take him on. They would say, nah, not this time. I, I disagree. There's, you need so. a little bit of troublemaking. I think that's a good thing. Yeah. 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 If we all agree, then if we all agree, then we're busted. Um, yeah. Perhaps just now the problem is we, we, we can't agree. Like, you know, um, we might discuss that in the fullness of time, but you know, the, um, I wrote a paper in Mark, uh, in June two, uh, 2020 saying um, you know the 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 dawn of chaos and, and chaos is when you know we, we become too tribal you know we're like in America first and foremost you're American you know and that's kind of get getting lost and, and for good reason it's getting lost because getting lost going to um, a very difficult set of economic circumstances which really haven't been resolved now and in, in, in perhaps 15 years people are getting angry but you know let's start to explore that you mentioned this white paper you put out in 2020 the dawn of chaos um and um you know you mentioned people getting angry about kind of the economic circumstances what do you make of the economy what is kind of your your overall view right now uh, i'm i'm fearful um, of the economy um and I'm again fear. I become fearful of the economy when the Fed becomes prominent in the debate. Why is that? Because the Fed is always wrong. <laughs> and yeah, I don't. I'm not gloating. Um, I don't really perceive or understand the Fed's role. Um. Money is complicated. I want to tell you that you know these hedge fund guys that get or girls who get paid billions of dollars, they don't understand money. It's not so. It's not the ignorance is not the preserve of the Federal Reserve. You you find it the length and breadth of Wall Street. I mean, I've been studying this for heavens for thirty odd years, um, with one hand, five fingers, one hand, I could count barely count. The people who actually understand money. So thankfully some do, but you don't find them at the Federal Reserve. Um, Fed's like a, you know, like an uncle at a wedding, like doing some kind of chicken dancing. It's like, there's just no need for the Fed. So, um, and then the thing that fascinates me is again, that cultural engagement and language. I think we were touching upon language narrative. And something quite extraordinary has come to pass in the last month, whereby we had um, the official reporting on second quarter GDP data, and it revealed that we've now endured in North America two consecutive quarters where 
the economy contracted. And for as long as I've been invested in markets, you call that a recession. Yeah. I kind of grumble a bit when you know the financial media, you know, the 20% rule, when the stock market falls 20%, boom, is in a bear market. Bear market, yeah. You know, fine, but okay, okay. But for sure, two consecutive quarters of negative um, of growth is a recession. And it was extraordinary uh, to see the Fed, to see their acolytes, to see the financial media come out with the most preposterous rejection of that reality. And the White no, House, too. The White House course, blog well, post, yeah. yeah they're, they're, all, they're, they're all in the short-term business of winning votes and surviving to the, you know, the midterms and then surviving to the, you know, the primaries. And it's all crooked. Um, so that's why I'm, I'm fearful. Um, I'm fearful because uh, the, the Fed chairman um, seems to have a hero complex. They seem to make a lot of money on Wall Street. And seems to be able to kind of cash it in on this kind of, you know, when you become a public servant, you kind of get your portfolio and you get to rinse it of all capital gains. I mean, that's that's not particular to him. That's particular to them all. You know, all these Goldman Sachs chief executives that suddenly you run the treasury. I mean, it's the greatest uh, rinse capital gains rinse elimination technique. And plus, you know, you get great tales to tell the kids and the grandkids. Um, but Jay keeps talking about, about Paul Volcker. And Paul Volcker, of course, is this legendary figure from 1979, um, who became Fed chairman, a, t a Texan with swagger and a very tall, physically imposing person that in the midst of the... Uh, at that time, the greatest economic recession since the end of the Second World War, he was raising interest rates very, very aggressively in a, in a desire to squeeze the system of inflation. And, and, and Jay Powell seems to, he mentions that reference point way too many times for my comfort level. And, and I say that because context is everything, especially in the reputational business. And so back with Volcker, so I, I said to you 79, and from 79, I'd go, my next logical point would be 1929. Um, so that's 50 years. And in 29, we kind of went over the edge. The, the Federal Reserve made another error, which is what they do. They're in the error business. And um, equities, equities reset to zero effectively in the, the banking sector reset to zero, which is say the North American banking sector, the global banking sector went bankrupt. Um, and that obviously in, impacted society and society therefore said no more of this. And we insist that we, we do, we have no heroics and no excessive risk taking from banks. And over the course of the next 40 years, banks became kind of dull conservative utility like functions. Um, and we took debt out of the business of the economy. We deleveraged the economy. So all of the debt from the government to whatever's on your credit card, to whatever your company is borrowing, all of that back in the early 1930s, um, it went to three, possibly four times, because a, um, a lot of it was uh, reneged. You said, well, you know, you thought it was an asset. And you said, I'm not paying. And so like three, four times GDP, debt to GDP. And when Volcker came in, 
debt was one time, so we deleveraged. There, there was really very little debt. And and here we are again, you know, 40 years later, and debt's back at the warning levels of, of four, four going on five times. Now, that's not the environment to summon the spirit of Jay Volker. Uh, Jay Volker, there you go, I'm kind of giving him the mix. That's definitely an oxymoron, Jay Volker. Um, no, that's just moronic, actually, not oxymoronic. <laughs> um, um, it's not the time to be Volker-like and, and push rates. So what they've done with interest rates, I think, was inappropriate because I, I believe the private sector, there's great genius that resides within these deep, deep markets that price rates every single day. Um, and all of this year, they've been warning the Fed, you're making a mistake. So that's my concern about today. So Fed is making a mistake, um, pointed to debt at warning levels and um, the way they've been um, moving rates has been inappropriate. What Help folks understand, um, maybe even like the ordinary folks too, um, how you think this ultimately plays out. What are the consequences of um, the Fed's policies? Okay, so, so it, it is playing out. And it's not playing out very well. Um, so the hardest thing for the ordinary folk and for the financial folk together is to recognize that the Federal Reserve Board of, of the United States, as lofty and as incredible as it sounds, um, does not print money. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the 1934-35 Federal Reserve Act prohib prohibits you know, you go to jail if the Fed printed money. Um, and and again, one of the, the, the profound absurdities in the midst of the of the, the great fear of, of COVID, um, Jay Power was on daytime television. He was saying, Yeah, we, we, we print money. We, we 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 print money. He was trying to kind of he was trying to make feel people feel better. You know, don't we we got your back. We'll, we'll print money, we'll get you out of this situation. Well, no. He was lying. He was lying. Liar, liar, pants on fire. Really extraordinary. No one, no one you know, called him out because there's only five people in the world that actually know he was lying. Um, private sector banks create money. How do they create money? They give you a loan. Right? They, you know, you gotta like I'm in a, a work site just now. I've borrowed uh, way too much money, I think, collectively to buy the thing and then to, to renovate, I borrowed 9 million euros, right? That 9 million euros before it was transferred to my account didn't exist. That's printing money. Um, now, because the banks almost went bankrupt, if we go back to the end of 2008, their appetite to go bankrupt again really is very, very low. So that yes, the banks have been kind of lending, but they'll they'll lend everything to Apple or Johnson and Johnson. But if you go to them as a mom and pop enterprise or you know, whatever, and it's a, it's a little bit kind of funky and a little bit risky, they're not interested. Like let me give you an example: credit cards. There's a lot talking about credit cards just now. Credit cards are booming. Are they credit dollar credit card outstanding balances? are 9% below where they were in 2019. Money's just not out there. So um, so what's happened 
since 2008 is that periodically, every two or three years, the Fed has panicked because it doesn't know that, that, that we, starting in the 1960s, we have this very heaven's dark web. It's like the matrix, but we private sector banks from around the world all came together and they created a network of alliances and trust, which we call the euro dollar monetary system. There's a system whereby uh, private sector banks outside America could create greenbacks. And this was a system where you took the Fed out of money. And ever since, the Fed's been hopelessly, hopelessly out of its... It's been blind. Um, and so with that blindness, it, it can't see. And every three years since 2008, they've tried to raise interest rates. And owing to that, I think this is the fifth cycle of, of being wrong since the great financial crisis. But owing to that, whilst the economy has recovered, it has never recovered the, the growth rate of the 30 years to 2007. You know, if, you, if you went back 87, 97, 2007, we were kind of growing at, the US economy is growing in real terms at three percentage points per annum. Since then, it's been at best 1.7%. We've lost a percentage point of annual growth that over 15 years amounts to it amounts to trillions of dollars of lost income every single year. And that's a depression. So I said to you, they're denying the existence of a recession despite the textbook, you know, clarification. And in the media, no one writes about a depression. Depressions have been consigned to the 1930s. They, they couldn't possibly happen now because, again, it's the conceit of modernity, that we're smarter, are we? This is, we're in the midst of a, of a gentle, but nevertheless, a miserable economic depression. And I put the blame, a lot of the blame, to the Federal Reserves. I have even more questions. And I mean, this is another, I'm so thankful to get to talk to you because these are ideas that you're right, you're not hearing in um, the mainstream media. Um, let's explore this notion that um, what I'm hearing from you is that we're currently in a de depression. Um, it might not be as miserable as the one from the 30s, but let's explore this. Um, how does how do how do we get out of this depression? How do they how does it end? Um, you get out of it. I keep saying you 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 got to go to my Substack and you got to get one of these. <laughs> it says I recommend you panic. Oh, yeah, um, and this, this, this literally. This is the most subversive thing that you can do. And forgive me, because I sell them for 100 bucks. I, I never noticed. Knowingly, <laughs> they're, they're I never right. knowingly undersell. And everyone's like, you sell it for 100 bucks. These hats are primed for subversity. They change your mood, see things, and try and tap into some of the creativity that... You know, I'm, I'm out there all the time. I put so much, I've got so much invested in trying to take on these gray, gray men of finance. Um, so help me buy a, buy a hat. But yeah, so uh, you, you go to the, ex, the, the experts are invested in the here and the now. And the here and the now, um, prices will recover. Pr uh, stock market prices will go higher and higher and higher. 
and Chase Coleman the third maybe makes a big gain again and maybe in 10 years time he has another gain of $5 billion. And all of the experts who live in that microculture, you know, who wear expensive suits, you know, who live in a neighborhood which is not your neighborhood, who, who fly business everywhere, right? You know, they're like, oh, no, it's, it's, it's going to be okay. And I was on the British broadcasting, the BBC back in, during the midst of the, the sovereign, European sovereign crisis regarding Italy and Greece and all of those unfortunate countries. And I was asked, what, what, what should the ordinary person do? I was like, panic. I and remember I get asked that interview. That yeah. And it's the same thing today. Um, it's really hard to find the resource to put 60 bucks of gas in the tank. And people say, what should the ordinary people do? They should panic. They should be damn angry. You know, I'm in St. Bart's. I build these houses and I rent them out. Um, you know, I mean, look at me. It's blinking hot, okay? Not only is it hot, it's humid. You're not too far away. I'm sure your conditions are similar, but I'm, yeah. I'm way south. And my client, my, so my clients, they can put 60 bucks of gas in the tank and they come to me and like, can, can you, can you ramp up? Can you put the, the heating on in the swimming pool? I'm like, it's, it's, it's summer, you know, really? I've got, I've got heat mirages coming off of the pool. You know, can you turn the, the AC set at 17? Can you get it to go lower? They're never, so the, there's two worlds. There's the world of the enfranchised who, who've owned assets um, since the Fed started to kind of, you know, the Fed, okay, let's give them a break. In 2009, they had a binary choice. Repeat the error of the 1930s and let the banking system go bankrupt or step in and try and influence through their language and, and other means uh, and support asset prices. And it's not, you know, the Fed is not Hercules, you know, that whole thing where you, you're holding the globe on your shoulders. That, that's not the Fed. That's every single U.S. citizen. It's not the Fed. It's you, every single U.S. citizen. And so the, the kind of residing anger and the problem in the political economy today is that back in 2009, and, and with every periodic interruption to higher asset prices, you know, in 2019, share prices fell 20%, and then the, the, the Fed did something. Um, in March 2020, you know, the uh, equity prices were falling rapidly and, and the Fed concocted language and, and a support operation. But when it does that, it is calling upon every U.S. citizen. So what, what, what am I trying to say that I'm saying that within the citizenship of the U.S., there are those who own assets and the, there are those perhaps owing to their age, where they are in their income cycle in terms of being able to put aside savings. And, and again, I keep using this word serendipity, but some people just didn't get there with, with life and, and don't have assets. But they are called upon to bail out the people with assets. So we reach a point where you can be in St. Bart's and complaining that the swimming pool should be a warmer temperature at the same time as the people who, who kind of made sure that you completed that journey are struggling to buy the school uniform for the return to school, who are struggling, who are having to trade down on food and who are struggling to get 
to work. And that's where we are in the crossfires just now where that's, you know, that's why we, that's why we have Trump and, and why we have Brexit, because there's just too many people who find themselves on the wrong side of that equation. Um, there's again, more to unpack within that. And I just want to continue to just explore this notion of us being in a depression kind of two worlds um, that you mentioned. Um, are you hearing, when you bring this thesis up to other folks, um, especially maybe folks um, maybe in the investing world too, do they agree with you? Do they say, yeah, that's right. That is, that's what's, because it's, it's, I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's, um, it's not one that you're, you're, you're right. It's not one that you're going to hear in the traditional financial media, but when you unpack it that way, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So I, I get, again, friends who are in finance, um, what's, what's, what's their, what's their incentive to shake things up? They, they like the status quo. Can we keep it? It's kind of cool. You know, um, you know, the whole, the whole hedge fund thing, especially, um, you know, what did we see? It's it, it just the cycle of COVID. Uh, we saw businesses which, Owing to the exceptional circumstances, their profits boomed. Then you had private equity uh, sponsors who were sufficiently smart to recognize that probably the business didn't get any better than than it looked back then at the end of 2020. And so they spent all of 2021 offloading their ownership onto the uninformed, the unwashed, if you will. Hey, buy this pizza delivery company, buy this you know, stationary bike company, buy Netflix, you know, buy all of these, you know, um, these uh, television platform companies without adverts. Um, and we, and so again, all, then you, then, and then a year later, you see that all the funds that bought that garbage, they then all lose 60%. And again, and what, and what, you, we need a revolution because how on earth can a manager personally make $6 billion? And then within 18 months have lost all of it. And yet they don't have to pay a cent back. You know, it, we, we live in a world with my financial friends. It's like heads I win, tails I win, you. I, I, and it's like, remind, remind me who you are again. I mean, that's, that's, that's where we are. Um, so that sounds facetious, but, um, and it is, but it's, that's not far from the truth. Yeah. Um, and then we haven't spoken yet about um, about the about the class, this corrosive class warfare, uh, which is now coinciding with this bumbling and erroneous Federal Reserve. And again, if we're not careful, it's just going to be the torchlight that, that blow, blows up our system. I'm, I'm concerned about the world. Yeah. Okay. More things to uh, just follow on here. He said, "We need a revolution. What does what does a revolution look like?" Okay, so the, the the revolution is getting political representation, um, and that's hard because there's not much in the way of um, there's not many. How should I put this delicately? We live at a point in time where if you go seeking advice and knowledge, um a reasonable, rational political operator would know where to find it. 
It's in the centre. You know, the names are obvious. They, they feature in public in financial media publications. They can be of Egyptian origin, etc. Um, they speak nonsense. Uh, we're at we're at one of those change in society. Thankfully, comes so very rarely because it can be so disruptive, and it can be at a, at a pace of 50, 50, 60 years. Which, if you think about it again, was was almost the the previous lifespan of of individuals. Certainly, the lifespan of accumulating wealth, and so it kind of it kind of rhymes. Um, but to understand the world increasing, to understand the world at these forks, you have to be cognizant of kind of some of the crazier people, you know, like people who like wear hats with their name on it, you know? Um, because sometimes it's the darn crazy people that can tell you that the system is even crazier than they are and they can actually help you get a sense of things. So let me have a go at that. Um, the, um, it's, it's China, China, you know, so uh, central banks have been applauded um, and it, it, for their role in reducing inflation over the last 40 years. And, and again, the benchmark is meant to be Paul Volcker. Um, I think that's um, an unearned reputation. I think that, that the decline in inflation owes everything um, to the willingness to accept the entry of China and its 1.4 billion citizens into the global trading system. And that willingness understood that poor, unskilled folk in communities uh, in what we call the West would, you know, would suffer. You know, they would suffer the indignity of losing their job they would eventually find themselves in a packaging and sorting office for Amazon. I've got nothing against Amazon, but I can't believe a day in a factory like that leaves your soul you know, fulfilled. And yet that's kind of one of the better jobs today in a world where the 1.4 billion people kind of keep winning. Now, that was all right because we had a, what are you going to do? You've got you know, a billion plus people and they earn a dollar a day. And because of that, they're always subject to kind of revolution and you know, they all want to be communists and burn the system down. And so there was an enlightenment. Hey, what if we made them richer? Maybe they'd be a bit like us and they'd be less prone to the whole communism thing. And more than that, as rich people, they would trade freely with us. And then they're, they're actually two plus two might actually, actually equal six for us not two and a half. And that's where there's been a failure for the Chinese to come through. Um, and they effectively, they use the value of their exchange rate vis-a-vis -vis the dollar and they manage it. They don't permit folk like me to push it where it should be. It should be a lot stronger. If the renminbi were a lot, so today it's about 6.75. If it were trading at 4.5, it'd be a lot stronger stronger. You would need less local currency to buy dollars or to buy products made in the United States. And so those 1.4 billion people could spend a lot more. They'd be wealthier. But they're, the autocrats that run their system are just not willing 
to give them that freedom. And so they impose a kind of, it's not even culture, they impose a system which creates huge surplus savings. And with that money, they park it in United States treasuries. It's the only market in the world where they're welcome. It's the only market in the world which is deep. It's the only market in the world where if they need the money back quickly, which they did again in March of 2020, and the Federal Reserve said, yeah, fine, we'll write a check, you take it. Okay. Um, that system is leading to serfdom in the United States of America. And that system has to stop. And the, the ability to stop it is simple. We would impose a withholding tax. So every year, so these nations own about seven and a half trillion dollars. And it's designed for that purpose to create serfdom in America. And charge them, charge them something, anything. I charge them three percentage points a year. I swear to you, they will, they will pay it. They will pay it. Um, and with that money, let's create a sovereign wealth fund. Because, and when, we, when the Federal Reserve, when it's finished with its economic vandalism, when the S&P's dropped another 20% from these levels, and where they're coming back in and trying to rescue asset prices. Let's rescue it with the sovereign wealth fund and then give an allocation. The ownership of that fund would be to the citizens of the United States who are disenfranchised. So suddenly it wouldn't be two tribes, those who, are, those who have assets and can come to St. Bart's and those who just pay the bills. It would be everyone would be enfranchised. And let's have that debate, but it doesn't exist. Why Why do you think people aren't, I mean, that's an interesting idea. Um, why isn't this something that's being more widely discussed? Because it's complicated and because that system, you know, the, the fabled 1%, um, and you know that that fabled 1% have a strong proximity to, to Wall Street or they're purveyors of jewelry and, and real estate and automobiles. But, you know, that system um, boosts profitability. It boosts corporate profits. You, if, if, we were if I was to present to you a chart of the share of corporate profits divided by all of the income in the economy, so what does that I mean? You, like, you know, if you're working in the Amazon sorting factory, that's your salary. If we add everyone's salary up from making tractors to, you know, to being accountants and dentists, if we were to add on the profits of Exxon and Microsoft, etc., if we were to throw in the rents that landlords receive, and if we were to throw in the interest income that creditors receive, through, out of all of that mix, you see that corporate profitabilities have just been taking more and more and more of the pie. And, and that is the mechanism which excites the stock market. And so it pushes asset prices higher and it makes this tiny coterie of people even richer every single year. You, you give them a body snatching invasion called COVID and you think, we got, we, we got you now. No, you don't, they get richer. Unstoppable force. Um, you know, turkeys don't vote for Christmas. 
uh, that 1% who, of course, spend billions placating the politicians in Washington, you know, blinding them that this is, we have prosperity. You've got prosperity for them, but not for everyone else. But that, you know, the, the mighty dollar um, buys a lot of precious political opinion. Um, again, I want to I want to tease out even more. Um, can we go back to the Fed? Mentioned like economic vandalism um, from the Fed. Uh, a lot of the mistakes they've made. Is there something they could have done, or maybe something they should do? Can they kind of turn this around or stop making mistakes? In your view, what can they do? They could resign. Um, you we we have. You know, so how many, I, I should know this and I don't know. I'm lazy. I'm, you know, building a beautiful house. Um, I don't know how many uh, board members there are, there are for the Federal Reserve. You know, when they, when they come together and they have that interest rate setting meeting. But um, let's say it's 15 people. Um, I prefer the private markets where you've got thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people making those decisions every single day. And what's more, their decisions are highly tuned decisions because they are having to use their judgment and 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 anticipate where we're going. And if, if their judgment is out, they will lose money. Potentially, they will lose a lot of money. They could lose their career. So that's, I like judgment where there's a sharp pencil against your, your spine. And if you get complacent or if you're wrong, ugh, you feel it. You know, the, the Federal Reserve is like one of my other great kind of people I'm, I'm a little bit against. Not against, but I'm against the power um, and the access to the media that they get. And, and these people are tenured economic professors. Um, and they can, and they do, spout nonsense and no one takes them on because they've been given a Nobel Prize or because they work at such a prestigious university and they can consistently be wrong but they never lose their tenure get rid of them you know so um, every single day we get a price for interest rates determined by the market um, and the price of those interest rates is, is again to, to repeat ad nauseum is wild, wildly different from the federal, from where the Federal Reserve and these fifteen or eighteen wise people who meet on a very irregular, regular, but you know, not every day, and where the decision, where the penalty of being wrong is, well, we got to try, try harder. So, um, you know, the Federal Reserve. Um, so let me give you a, a very good example. Jay raised rates. Um, Janet had been raising rates, but like Janet's cautious. And then Jay came in and he's like, I want to be Volker. Boom, 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 hits rates um, in 2018. And we were in the midst of a big um, credit markets were financing um, hydrocarbon exploration. You know, the, the fracking, the wonderful resource, the, the huge fracking fields of North America. It's a precarious business and it was being financed by high yield credit. And then Jay kind of somehow blindly, he sees that this economy, which is in depression, 
is needs to be slowed down. He raises rates. My friends in my markets go, you're crazy, okay? Like we, we've got to reflect where you're going to take things, but I tell you this is going to break. Sure enough, the system breaks. And so the high-yield bonds supporting all of this energy exploration, they go from trading you know, 96 uh, cents in the dollar to 26 cents in the dollar. Everyone, there's a financial panic and you sell this stuff. And so here we are today and, and we haven't even mentioned inflation. We, I, I reject the, the ubiquitous, ubiquitous terminology of inflation. I believe we, we're seeing uh, profoundly high prices in a subsector of, of the economy where we have no choice. We can't cut back on our consumption. We, ha- we have to buy them at all cost. Um, and then I see discretionary expenditure, again, like those silly Peloton bikes, which you don't need or the subscription, your Netflix, which you don't need, eating out in restaurants, which you can eat less out time, etc. But anyway, um, you know, quite recently, you, you, you've been paying 175 bucks you know, the price of oil per barrel just now is like $90. But filling uh, the car up with gas at the forecourt, you've been paying 175 bucks. Why? I would say to you two reasons. Um, the Federal Reserve, that Jay's hiking cycle, which was unnecessary, you know, he admitted it, he had to pull away from it in 2018, but he destroyed the high-yield credit financing environment for, um, for the oil and gas fracking operators. And so today we're looking for the U.S. to increase supply, to bring down these energy prices. And these guys are like, you know, it's Oakham's razor or whatever. They're not, is it Oakham's razor? No, it's the Pavlov's dog. Pavlov's dog. They're like, I'm, my, 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 my creditors, my, my investors are like, no, 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 no. You pay, pay down your debt. Do not go, do not go fracking. Pay down your debt. That's why, that's one of the reasons we've got, uh, you're paying 175 bucks at the forecourt for gas. Blame Jay. Wait, is that in St. Bart's? 175 or? That's in Texas. What? Okay, I'm paying like maybe 72 to 80 bucks for diesel. For diesel, well, you've worked all the way through because you see what happens is, you know, uh, Barrow of oil is 90 bucks, okay? But that's not the end of the story. Um, you, you gotta refine. You know, you get different grades and types of petroleum. You know, the stuff out of Russia is heavy and he's a much different form of refining. Um, and then we hit we hit the other monster of insanity, you know, the society's rightful desire to stop the warming of the, the world, you know, to save this fragile planet. But we're going about it all wrong. This uh, um, environmental social governance has meant that we've, again, just been, you know, let's take the example of, of Germany where they're paying $600 per barrel to, to heat houses today, right? You know, and, and where you have the Green Party and because of the profound incompetence of public servants, the Green Party are now burning sulfuric coal. You know, coal is at the highest price ever because the Greens are burning it. You, you can't, inv- you know, 
My touchstone, let me just stop a second. Albert Camus, existentialist, Belgian, French uh, philosopher. Life is impossibly light because, and forgive me if you're of a religious distinction, I say this with frivolity, but you know, God is dead. There are no rules. You're on your own. Life is absurd, okay? The absurdity of having a green governing party burning coal and, and 600 bucks. So back to what you're paying for gas in Miami and elsewhere, um, there has been no um, new refining plant built west of the Suez in 45 years. Wow. I mean, the, today feels like, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I may start up as subconsciously calling you Dagny from Atlas Shrugged. You know, Dagny, um, something's not right about the world. Something just, I don't know what it is, but something really feels dark and broken about this world. There's a lot. Again, I wanted, I do want to talk about ESG and gosh, I've been reading a lot about like oil lately. And you mentioned a couple of different types of it. And yeah, there's some that's heavier, some that's lighter, sweeter. And the refining facilities, it depends on what they usually refine too. So there's a lot to dig into there. But um, before we get into ESG, I, can we go back to inflation for a sec? Because um, it's hard to jump all over the place, but I, there's just something I've been like really keen to ask you about is you've said inflation is a social phenomenon. I would love to hear you um, unpack that. Yeah. So... People have been warning about inflation, really smart people have been warning about inflation since March 2009 with the advent of quantitative easing on American financial soil. Obviously, the Japanese had started that experiment, uh, I think, nine years prior to the Federal Reserve. And, and back in the day, there was huge column inches given to the US dollar is going to go the way of the Zimbabwean uh, dollar. Uh, and and that is to, again, believe that there's an investiture with the Federal Reserve, that the five people who actually understand money work for the Federal Reserve, sadly, they, they don't. And, and so you get this profound misunderstanding about what quantitative easing is. Um, quantitative easing is, um, is the creation of, at this point, about, what, seven or nine, nine trillion dollars of tokens not of money, like so. It's it's reserve assets, banking reserve assets, and you've got to make that distinction. Like, you could take nine trillion dollars of bank reserve assets to Starbucks and try and buy a frappuccino, and you will fail. They will not accept your nine trillion dollars of reserve banking assets uh, in in lieu of a frappuccino. Okay, so some, something's wrong. And, and that's a silly example, but uh, since March 2009, so um, where the sloganeering to be true, if you had created an, an enormous surplus, $9 trillion of surplus greenbacks, then the marginal price of each greenback would be on the slide. And again, that's not true. The, the external value of the dollar has appreciated against just about every currency, but perhaps not against the Chinese because their, um, their trade flows, you know, they're, they're running huge trade surpluses. And again, they're running huge trade surpluses because 
they're a little bit kind of malevolent in how they underwrite the external value of their currency. So a strange business. And then where the Fed, I told you, like Jay being on daytime TV and saying, yeah, we're, we're printing money. It's us, we're doing it. All right. And then you fast forward two years and suddenly, you know, prices in the, the continent of North America are running at almost 10% year over year. And it's reminiscent of the 1940s. And and Jay and so is, and Jay owns it now because he he stupidly told everyone he was printing money when he wasn't, you know. And the you know the administ the, the administration the leadership of the U.S. they heard it and they they're like, hey Jay, come here, come here a second. So you were printing money and now we've got prices out of control and my poll, you know, that my opinion polls are collapsing. It's on you, my friend sort it out and so jay's in this kind of oh my god i was a little bit silly and so now that you know that's partly why i think they're being so aggressive in trying to um increase interest rates and 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 sound like paul volcker now in terms of the 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 inflation that we worry about well the the, the closest proximity of course is the 1970s the 1970s was an ex extraordinary decade one one in a, a decade, a decade like no other from the past in terms of the United States experience, and, and no other that we've seen. And I would, I mentioned to you this matrix, you know, the red pills, the blue pills that I mentioned to you in the nineteen sixties. Uh, the world's private banking system had finally latched on to a system where they could take the government or the Fed, the Feds out of the money creating process. And so previously the, the Fed would give you rules about how much you could lend to each other. And then we went on to this dark system whereby if you if your counterparty, which was another bank, if they had full confidence in your ability to deliver your commitments, you could do whatever you wanted. And, and so that, that was an amazing period where banks became drunk with the possibility and they and what do what do private sector banks do they print money they lend they print money they lend they print money and they did that ad nauseum and they created the monetary um wherewithal so where am i going with this i'm going with this sense that if money does not expand well, let's say it expands by two percent but over the last year, it's costing you like 50% more to fill up your car and to heat the house and, and to cool the house. And your food bill has gone up 20% and everything else, right? So your, your basket of goods and services that you normally consume has gone up on average by 10 or 12%. But the amount of money circulating in the economy has risen by 2 3 4%, okay? then one doesn't fit into the other. There's not enough money for you to continue to support the same level of consumption as you did a year ago. And that forces choice upon you. You don't really have choice because you don't have choice. You've got to drive to the office or the factory. You, you've got to heat your house. You've got to feed the kids, etc. And so it's pretty obvious where you cut back. And 
That's why the Fed keeps saying, I mean, do they say it? But that's effectively what they're saying. We're, we're, creating, we're going to create a, a recession. We want you to lose your job so that you won't have the wherewithal to maintain the same consumption as you did a year ago or two years ago. They want you to lose your job. You know, it's, it's at the same time as the damn mercantilist nations in Germany and the, 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 the Central Asia, they want you to lose your job so that they can take it. And that is, that is a profound, nasty class warfare, again, which creates the seeds of, of, of the reincarnation of God knows uh, another form of Trump anger. Um, but it doesn't create inflation because those ecstatic banks from the 1970s, I mean, they're on Valium today. I mean, they're on opioids because they're so depressed because unrestricted in their ability to lend money, which they were in the years 2003, 2004, 2005, 2006, 2007, you want a loan? Hey, did I, I just got divorced, it doesn't matter. You want a loan, but I'm just out of prison. It doesn't matter. You want a loan? I've got a drug habit. Would you shut up? Just take the money, right? Well, 15 years from that absurdity, they're like, mm, we're not printing money. So in the absence of them printing money, um, I think we come back to the environment after the Second World War. Prices in North America were rising at 20% in 1948. Um 17, 15% in 1949. Um, by 1950, 51, they'd come all the way back down again. Why? Because there was a, a commensurate increase in money supply, whereby you, where you, where you didn't have to make those difficult choices, where you didn't lose your job, you know, where you didn't have to cut back on going to the theater, going to the restroom, trading down on your on your salad or whatever. So that's do you that's think what we'll about it. you think it'll play out like that though that the, it will eventually come back down or do you think this is going to stay persist? Well, it it ain't coming down in the energy field because of our our reckless pursuits in saving the world. You know, the uh, if you look at for Europe, if you look at where the natural gas forward contracts, you know, so you know Natural gas is kind of spiky thing. We need more of it in the winter months. You know, if, if the weather's particularly cold, we discover we don't have enough of it and the price goes higher. Uh, during the Ukraine, when the emergence of the Ukraine crisis in March of this year, uh, the, the, the forward points kind of, well, the, the, the winter months went really, really high. Um, but then there was an expectation that they would there would be a resolution, there would be solutions. Um, what have we discovered? There are no resolutions. Uh, Europe has no energy. It only has energy from the autocratic regime of Putin. Yeah? Um, and the solution, LNG, natural gas pipelines, more and more green, sustainable, it ain't going to be delivered in the next one year, two years, three years, four years, five years. Natural gas is, is going to be trading at six or seven or $800 per barrel of crude in Europe for the next three, four years. So that's where we create a different set of circumstances, which is if, inf so if, if inflation is not, um, if it is a monetary phenomenon, but if you need a little bit more juice to overcome the limitations in our 
subdued financial community. And it becomes a psychological factor. Well, people getting angry is where you might step next. And, and so inflation, I think, would be most likely to be revealed first in Europe. And there's a horrible harbinger. I, I hesitate to say this, but in my paper in, in the year 2020, I was saying that one thing to fear is political assassination. Because that's a great demonstration of, of the anger percolating and exploding to the surface. And so the assassination of the former Japanese prime minister um, six weeks ago fills me with dread. And, and I hope it's an isolated, I hope and I pray it's an isolated event. But when people can't keep their homes um, and when it comes out just how lame and culpable and, and compliant with the Russians a generation of European politicians has been, I, I do fear. And I'm not someone who fears easily. I'm, and I'm not a, a, a perpetual bear. I believe in the ingenuity of the human race that we will overcome. Stick it to the man. And some crazy rebel or group of will find an alternative enlightened path and we will endure. But this period just now is a, is a, is a dark chaotic period that we have to cross. Yeah. Um, and uh, folks can probably still find that white paper online. Um, so it brings up the, the next question, um, which is what matters more than the Fed? Um, you and I, we, we matter. We matter more than the Fed. Um, and, and that's the psychological aspect. Um, and, and you and I, have to create, you know, we have to find, we have to arm ourselves, you know, not with pistols and, you know, munitia, uh, but with a better understanding. Again, I keep saying, like, when the grey suits come on, switch off, like, complain. When they keep telling you things are going to be okay, you know, get angry with, well, do not assassinate the experts either, but, you know, um, you and I are, are, are way more important. We, so, was poorly delivered. We need better debates within our society. You know, the, the problem with VSG is, is not the origins, it's not the, the ambition, it's the execution. You know, um, since the, the great technology bust of 1999-2000, the economics of journalism have collapsed. You know, as a journalist, as a thoughtful, intelligent journalist with so much to offer the world with your curiosity and your, and your wordplay and, and your intelligence, you wouldn't choose these days to work for a newspaper. You'd have your substack, except, you know, again, uh, intelligence follows rewards, the reward on intellectual capital. And it's, it's not there in, in newspapers. And so, the population at large, we're, we're still consuming, but we're not getting, we're not hearing um, the, the whole argument. You know, I think if, if there are, what, 8 billion people on the planet, 1.3 billion of us are, you know, are rich. We consume 13 barrels of oil uh, a, a year, I want to say. Um, and the rest, 
consume like nothing. And we're coming in, we're saying, right, we're, we're going to freeze it at that point. You know, and we're going to freeze it by having no more hydrocarbon um, exploration. That system doesn't work. You know, we have to be enlightened. You, you can you can find lower carbon reserves of oil. You, you can organize the heavy energy intensity of extracting hydrocarbons from the earth via cleaner, non-carbon based um, energy sources. Um, there's so much we can do, but to stop everything creates a world where in Europe they're paying $600 per barrel of oil and it's only going to go higher. Yeah, there's stats that like 3 million people on this planet use less energy than that of like an average American refrigerator. Um, so let me ask you this about the ESG movement because we've been talking about it for a little bit. Is this like, because we kind of, we're kind of seeing this play out around the world too. Like the, I don't know, Dutch farmers over fertilizers because um, energy is used for uh, the creation of food um, through fertiliz fertilizers. Um, we had Sri Lanka play out. I mean, is this just kind of like one of those I mean, that maybe there's good intentions behind it, but this is like one of the negative consequences or was it like more of like the the elites kind of coming from a privileged position of, okay, we want to cut back here. Everyone else should do the same. I don't know. Like, what do you what do you make of it? Like, why why do you think it's played out the way it has so far? It's it's it, it's very it feels very immediate. It feels like we have to do something now. You know, the just just look at the summer headlines with the the droughts in Europe. You know, France has a lot of nuclear energy, but it can't cool the, the, the turbines down because the external temperature of the water is too high. I mean, um, you know, the UK's got a, a hose pipe ban. They have, the UK where it rains all the time, you know, it's got drought. So it feels very um, imminent. And there's a huge sponsorship. It's how it, it's, the investiture is greatest amongst the youngest of us, logically, because you know they're going to have to grapple and deal with this longer than than us. Maybe not me, because I'm getting younger every day, but we'll see. Um, and then, actually, talking about me, uh, you've, you've got the kind of rich folk. When you're rich, life is blinking wonderful, and you want more and more and more of it. Right? And so, if that means saving the planet, and that means like, okay, no more hydrocarbon. You're like, great, I love it. I'm in. You know, Extinction Rebellion, which is one of the best funded and most crazily active. These are the, the kids that chain themselves to, uh, to, to block motorways or to stop uh, airports operating or whatever. Very aggressive. They're funded by a hedge fund manager. You know, um, Who's, who flies around in a private jet <laughs> and he gets a free ride. No one, no one, no one takes them down on it. And the kids who are chaining themselves, Oh, you know, with the mask on and like, you know, they're all, we're all in Berkeley and it's 1969 or whatever. No, one, you're being absolutely taken for a ride. So I, 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 all I can say to you is, um, you know, Again, keep keep visiting my sites. Buy buy my hats. Speak to the crazy people. Find find people who are willing to tell you the truth because the system and its investiture has got so much money um, 
on the basis that prices just go higher, that it ain't, it ain't going to be offering you a solution. So mm -hmm. it's a very depressing. It's very, very depressing. You know, the North, but North, I mean, for all the prop, the travails in Europe, I don't know how long we, we keep these crazy prices, how long we keep that distinct to Europe and, and, and prevent it from jumping over the Atlantic and affecting North America. Um, and I say I don't know because you know, natural gas, the US, for all intents and purposes, has almost an infinite supply of natural gas. But natural gas has to be moved. It's difficult to move. Very difficult. Um, if, you, if, you have, if you have pipelines, you've got to have substations for boosting it, boosting it, boosting it, so, so to speak. Um, if you do the LNG, you, LNGs, LNG again is it's one of these things about favoring the here and now over the smart things. The amount of investment in ports, the ships in order to contain the pressure, um, the amount of carbon that goes, that's invested in that infrastructure for LNG means that effect, so the attraction of natural gas has got 50% less of the carbon emission than burning oil. But when you transform it into LNG, guess what? You just spend billions to make a lot of carbon oil-like product. Again, like the world is damn crazy. And, and so you should have pipelines and the technology. You, hey, listen, the, the Russians have got that. Uh, the, 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 the two Nord Stream pipes running in the ocean coming into Germany. So you can do it. We should have them running. The length and breadth of the United States should be connecting with Europe. But try find a local politician that is not in bed with the hedge fund guys and, the, and like the really rich housewives and everyone's got a social spirit and everyone wants to save the planet um, that, that can come in vacation in St. Bart's and have the swimming pool at maximum in, <laughs> in August, right? Who don't have to worry about putting 60 bucks in the gas tank, but they worry about investing in a pipeline. I mean, I bet you see some interesting folks who come through uh, and maybe like human behavior or psychology just help people behave who come through. Um, let me ask you this. I don't, not really. Okay. Um, well, I didn't know if you want to say, if you want to say anything there, but, um, I guess like, I was going to, I tell you what, I was, I was just going to, I was just going to lament on the, um, and, and I'm wasting our time, but no, 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 um, say it, do it. The, the, the people who come here typically, um, my age have enjoyed success in all walks of different life. I mean, you make a lot of money in boring family enterprises, just serving, you know, um, enterprise. Um, but everyone comes to St. Bart's. And first of all, men, right? They're, I mean, I am, I am no one to speak, but um, you just cannot dress like Baby Gap, right? You know, and, and everyone comes and they look 15, they look like my father. Um, and I've said too much. No, um, <laughs> okay, okay. I'm, ju I'm just, a, I'm the last Jedi, you know, I've, I've, I've come to this volcanic island and, I, I kind of 
I worked out several years ago, I think coming through the European sovereign thing, that they'll never reform. Like it's a it's kind of like a waste of time. Better to find a safe, secure hope and pray you find a safe, secure place away from a maddening world. Yeah. That's St. Bart's for me. A maddening world and a safe and secure place at that. Um let me just ask you this, like about where would you where I mean I don't know, if you were just to talk to like a normal person or I, I you're not in the hedge from business anymore, but where would you want to be? Where should I don't know if this is something you even want to answer, but like where should people put their money to protect themselves? Like what what are the opportunities out there? Well, the, the, the opportunities uh, result from the, 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 the cultural insanity wars. You know? So you, you were saying, I was saying to you, I don't think this feels like 1970s inflation, which is to say there isn't the monetary uh, expansion and therefore people will lose jobs because people will cut back on discretionary spending items. But regardless of that, like oil prices, gas prices, um, food prices are going to remain high. Um, and so, and you, you just have to look at um, the oil and gas uh, quoted sector in the stock market. It, it seems to have, again, I said to you, I was a, a, a trend following contrarian. Um, they're, they're trending higher. And, and I think we all understand why they're trending higher. The hardest thing, the thing that exercises the most is uh, misgivings about um, how China can continue to grow at 5%. I mean, it's, it's failing this year. It's, it's, you know, its growth is, you never know. I'm procrastinating with Chinese growth because they can always say it's 5%, but you know they make it up. Um, and again, our media just allows them to, to make it up, but they make it up. The lie is revealed. If you create, if economic growth is where incomes lift, and incomes lift because you're creating wealth, and when you create wealth over time, your stock market goes up. Um, when in China and, and other parts of the world where they make GDP growth from building roads, uh, fast rail links, bridges, etc., and where the cost of those projects will never be repaid by the utility of moving the citizens faster, if you will, and, and over these expanses, that the economic advantage accruing to those individuals from using that infrastructure will never repay the cost of making the infrastructure, then you're destroying wealth. So China over the last 15, 20, 25 years, its GDP has been parabolic, and the stock market has been flat. You know, stock market never lies. That's a good uh, but point. you asked me a question: how, what, what should people do? Um, uh, life, life is one of paradox. Um, like at thirty seconds to midnight, the Germans have kind of decided that maybe they shouldn't close down the final nuclear power plant. Um, uranium. I think we're we're entering into a world where. Um, if you don't want $600 per barrel of oil heating your house in North America, we might have to see a few more nuclear power stations. We certainly have to see a lot more in Europe. Uh, the lead time may be long, but uh, when there is an intention, the price will reflect that. Um, so uranium, oil and gas. And then it's not really an advert for 
for gold. Gold is just, let me, you know, I am not a Peter Schiff. God forbid. <laughs> yeah. God forbid. God forbid. It's, you know, I am, I am the anti-Schiff. Um, you know, people have to understand that people are desperate to understand this world. They've been confined for the best part of two years. They're losing their job. Prices are high. And they come looking for advice and they get middle-aged great people, right? You know, that's a disaster. Anyway, forgive me. Um, so I made a lot of money from gold. I am not a gold, but gold is blinking preposterous. This is a stupid thing. Really, really stupid. It's stupid that you would buy gold. <laughs> why? <laughs> Tell me. Because why? Economic purpose does it serve? You know, you to go to all of this expense, also the little pollution. You, you've got to sift so much ground and rock to find to find this right. And what do you do with it? It's not like you put it into some technology which saves the planet or makes us more productive. None of that. And even today, you could argue you don't need it anymore with with Bitcoin. Maybe don't need as much of it because there are alternatives. Wait, so also, okay. you just mentioned Bitcoin. Is Bitcoin an alternative to gold? How do you view Bitcoin? I'm sure you get asked this bit. Um, it's a, it's um, the, the, the value of Bitcoin is trying to determine how much of the demand in the future, which resides for um, wealthy people to seek assets where you can't expand the supply and therefore they're deemed to be inflation hedges. Uh, and up until Bitcoin, which is, let's call it 10 years ago, kind of gold was, gold had it. You Gold and silver, but silver has a has more of a, uh, an industrial cyclical application. So kind of gold. Um, and gold, um, happens how much gold, I, I want to say, uh, 2,000 bucks was a, nine or ten trillion dollar market capitalization and so the whole point of bitcoin was like hey what if actually people think yeah i don't need gold i can do it with bitcoin and what if 50 percent of that market um, became invested in bitcoin and not gold well then bitcoin should be a five trillion dollar market and then you take five trillion dollars and you divide it by they will not have more than 21 million it's like a share count they won't have any more than 21 million bitcoins you divide five trillion by by twenty one million, and you get an, an absurd price level for Bitcoin. Um, that's I, I don't dismiss that argument. I don't dismiss that argument. And indeed, uh, further in, in terms of trying to end on on positive light, um, I said to you a depression since since uh, two thousand and eight. In two hundred years, we've had four. This is the fourth. We had one in 1830, the Les Miserables. Um, you know that musical? Yeah. In music. Uh, but, but it was a musical French based on... Again. You know, yeah, exactly. And, and because uh, there was a, an economic... It was the first economic depression whereby you were losing your job, you were hungry, you were angry. Things weren't, you know, like Dagny, life's not good. I don't know what it is. There's a corruption in life. And back in 1830, normally... It would be because the crazy king has just invaded Russia or something crazy like that, you know. 
But there was none of that. And instead, uh, the travails and the poverty you felt was owing to an economic contraction that banks were no longer expanding credit. And, and that was the first time ordinary people felt it. That was 1830 to 18, 1855. Um, there wasn't enough money in the system. That ended with the discovery of Californian gold, which was a massive increase, uh, giving the banks leeway to lend more. Um, the same thing happened coming out of the American Civil War. We had a, it's called the Golden Depression because we did have economic growth. 1870, 1890s, but there was a great desire to rebuild after the, the continent-wide uh, war and damage, but the banks were constrained. You could only lend so much based on how much, again, this damn stupid piece of metal that you had in your vaults. And after a couple of years, you know, they'd used it all and like, sorry, I can't give you any more loans. And that's the Wizard of Oz depression. You know, um, The yellow brick road is the gold standard. Yeah. And, and Ruby, and unfortunately, Ruby wears, sorry, Dorothy wears Ruby slippers because it looks good, the red against the, the yellow. In the movie. In the movie, but in the book, of course, yeah. it's silver slippers. That's right. It's like, hey, like, bring in, buy meta, meta, metalism, expand the money supply, help, help the poor guy. That's interesting. Um, I actually never made you, that connection, but you're right. She did wear silver slippers in the book. Yeah. And yeah. the... Um, And then the line is the politicians, because it's, it's um, heavens, what's his name? Um, the, the politician, who, the populist, who stood two times for the common man, Henry Golding. Oh, how does my mind just... Um, Wait a um, second. We have to look this William up. Jennings. Oh, William Jennings. William Jennings. There you go. You know, stop crucifying the common man on a crucifix of gold. Arlette, Arlette, Arlette. That's French for stop. Uh, he lost two times. He was genius and he lost two times. He is the cowardly lion. He can roar. But the money, and again, today with ESG and all this nonsense, the money controls the narrative. The, and Trump and the like, they're just powerless Biden. They're, they're lions where the, there's no bite. It's just preposterous roar. Okay. Um, that depression was terminated with uh, a technological revolution, which we call as a chemical leaching, which allowed you to uh, access and obtain more gold out of South Africa. So again, we created money. And then the third was the Great Depression. And I would say to you that it wasn't the Second World War. It wasn't the Bretton Woods monetary system. It was the creation of taking the government out of banking and allowing banks to, to operate amongst themselves as a revolution in banking. And, and that created the, the immense prosperity of the last 50 years. Wow. And so we will come out of this fourth episode probably with a revolution in money. Uh, and the revolution in money, it would seem at this point, would have something to do with the blockchain and just making it easier and taking a lot of cost out to, to start expanding credit again. Maybe this time around, having taken the government out of credit, what if we can take the banks out of credit as well? That might be the narrative for the next 50 years. That's an interesting idea. When you say blockchain, could that involve Bitcoin? Do you see a place for Bitcoin? Yeah. yeah. 
But, you know, Bitcoin and the valuation of Bitcoin will always be a function of um, uh, a wealth a, a wealth institution, be it a family or, you know, a pension fund, etc. how much of their assets they wish to allocate between uh, commercial property, um, gold, um, U.S. treasuries, you know, those kind of things which are kind of, U.S. treasuries might be a leap, uh, index-linked U.S. treasuries uh, tips. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is it, oh, because you put all of that in and that you're talking, heavens, what are you talking, 50, 60 trillion dollars market, more than that. Uh, and you say, well, maybe Bitcoin is two or 3% of that. Or maybe it's five, maybe it's 10%. And that will give you some frame of reference for where Bitcoin should trade. But it's the blockchain, you know, the the paperwork that I have to endure taking out loans to build houses. I mean, that and, 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 and the lack of trust, if you will, between the two counterparties. If, if you could bridge the lack of trust and make the counterparties just more willing to trust each other and therefore more willing to exchange credit, that would be, a, that would be how you could expand the money supply and get money to the entrepreneurs, get money to the future Steve Jobs who are, you know, in their garages to today being crazy, but you have this chance to kind of shake up the future. Well, Hugh, this has been an incredible conversation and I've learned so much from you. And I, I want folks to just hear from you um, a bit more about what you're up to. You have a podcast, Substack. Let the folks know what you're doing, where they can find you and learn some more. Well, that's, I get, let, me, let me put the hat on. Yeah, put the um, hat on. <laughs> Hugh, Hugh Henry, um, I've got a, a Substack uh, with the name. I'm on Twitter. Um, I've, I've got the generosity of 60,000 fellow souls, would you believe, the tribe of asset capitalism. Um, Henry underscore Hugh, um, I contribute there. Um, I do a weekly podcast. Uh, you could, it's called The Asset Capitalist Show. Um you can find that on the the Apple platform and all the others, but you know Apple for me is the S and P, Spotify is Nasdaq. We're on both, um, and we also have that on on YouTube. And then if you want to see a bit of the the beautiful color that surrounds me, um, Hugh Hendry official is is the Instagram. I don't wear bikinis, but you know, I love that. Um, is there is there na- is there a story behind the Acid Capitalist uh, the name for your podcast? Yeah. Um, the um, many stories. Um, the world's so crazy that you know. I you know like the idea of being. That you've got to trip out to to you know. You got to trip. You got you. You need higher revelations. The uh, a wise person said to me. Uh, so I I give off this. I give off this ir- irreverent attitude, and a wise person said to me, "Listen to the audience." The audience will always, they will promote onto you what they, what they're either missing or what they want from you. You know, they're, they're telling entertainers. And, and so, you know, my thing is I've always done it differently. Um, I have this preposterous experience of being shaman like in, in, in just getting glimpses of what can happen. You know, I form contentious narratives um and and so yeah they kind of you know um we all we all need a bit of enlightenment and um and so and 
people push me in that direction of the of the acid form of capitalism. Back at the the height of the uh, the 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 sixties counter cultural movement, there was a big thing for you know the, the opposite acid um, acid Marxism and the like. We we don't we don't want that. Do we we just we need a we need we need a a more fun more playful adventurous spirit of capitalism to take us forward and not to go backwards. I like that. And you've given us a lot to think about. Hugh Hendry, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.